welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to episode 47 of the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace, here again with Freya Spence, and today we welcome to the show Mr. Gary Ward. Gary is the founder of Anatomy in Motion, creator of the Flow Motion Model, and author of the book, What the Foot. His Anatomy in Motion approach to working with the human body focuses on reclaiming lost movement and function, and Gary is known for solving quote-unquote unsolvable pain in just minutes. His finding-centered courses for fitness and therapy professionals alike are immersive experiences into the evolution of human anatomy, physiology, and motion. Gary's approach starts with the foot, but results in whole-body integrated movement solutions to resolve pain faster than other conventional methods. If you've ever dealt with lingering pain or lost range of motion in your body, you're not going to want to miss the next 60 minutes of this conversation. Without further ado, here's Gary Ward on the Move Daily Health Podcast. Enjoy! So to give our audience a little bit of background, Gary, do you mind telling us a little bit about how you fell in love with human movement and then what led you to looking closer at the feet as an access point to everything else in the body? Okay, yeah, sure. Um, I'd have to flip your questions around because it was the uh, falling in love with feet that got me into human movement as it happened. Which I don't know if that's the right or wrong way to go about starting a podcast, but I, I fell in love with feet. Um, and uh, um, I think it, it's, it's widely known, uh, not necessarily to your audience, but I began life as a ski boot fitter, um, I'm a mad, crazy, avid skier. I uh, was lucky enough to um, end up in the Alps in France, uh, working um, and running a technical ski shop, uh, so selling skis, boots, technical clothing, having a hire shop, etc. And uh, we became very quickly one of the goals was to set up a ski boot, ski boot fitting department um, that would if you've ever skied you know that most most people struggle with their ski boots so the goal of having a place if you can make people comfortable in their boots everybody would come and that's exactly what we did and taught over a, a really small amount of days having never seen a bone really outside of what you get on a Sunday dinner um, it was there was suddenly these bones moving and arches going down and up and flat feet and wide feet and different shaped feet and high insteps and funny toes and and how to just capture them all in your mind and organize a ski boot in order to make anybody and everybody comfortable and and that that was I I don't know if I apart from actually skiing I don't I don't know and anything outside of sport I don't know if I'd ever had a, a passion about anything but that transfixed me really really quickly and then. I just remember really soon after starting getting results and people walking in and saying, I've got this problem in my boot. Is there anything that you guys can do? And I would be like, yeah, we just need to reduce the pressure there and increase some contact here. And um, and all of a sudden people were, I was, we were getting great results. Um, and the team around us, there was nobody, everyone was new to it. So, But I quickly became the person to ask and for help and we worked well as a team and eventually I just kind of became obsessed with it. I did that for six winters um, and it was that that got me interested in, in studying anatomy I suppose um, and I had a, a big deliberation as to whether what route I should take. I didn't really want to go back to university so I, I got the quickest kind of 
piece of paper I could to get to get working with the human body um, and I became a personal trainer and a sports therapist I did a three-month course not like a weekend course and um and, and I took that back to the Alps as well so I was ski boot fitting doing like sports massage and helping people with injuries a little bit doing training in the summer going back skiing again and um and eventually the the anatomy pool was so big it became bigger than than the skiing pool if you can believe that and then um, uh, so I, I went back to being or to really become a personal trainer in a gym in the UK um, and I managed 18 months before kind of moving on and introducing some ideas so the ideas that I was introducing sprung out of this disconnect that there seemed to be about the foot that I loved and the information that people were presenting um, on courses so courses for back pain or shoulder pain or strengthen this, strengthen that. And of course, I've been working with ski boots where the idea was to make a foot stable, but it wasn't by stabilizing the foot. It was creating movement opportunity in the foot and creating a stable base that people could move on inside the ski boot. So this idea of locking a foot up, being stable, being rigid, none of that really um, resonated with me. And um, creating a stable core, I thought, I don't think a stable core is that useful because um, I did different sports. You can't swing a golf club and keep your core stable. <laughs> you need to be able to separate your rib cage from your pelvis in movement. Skiing, that, it wasn't a useful skill. Um, and so the big question was, you know, what is stability? And um, and the other, the final piece of the puzzle for me was when people would, well, it was a final piece of the puzzle to for understanding, and they use understanding as, as it's quite a big word, really. But the the thing that happened with ski boots is people would have one of two responses. One was my performance improved, and the other one was my pain disappeared. Um, and that was uh, okay. So you don't have back pain, and we just did what to your foot type thing. So it was those questions that just got me so kind of engaged with trying to understand it. And sadly, there was a lack of education that could help me answer those questions. And there was obviously met some great people along the way, pointed me in right directions. Um, but it became, for me, the desire to um, map this determination of movement is is basically that's what we teach now. But when when a when a foot pronates, does it have a, a connection up the rest of the body? When the foot supinates, does it have a connection up the rest of the body? And you start to recognise that actually it, it has relationships. It has relationships with the spine. Has, which has relationships with the shoulders. And so pretty soon you can go from foot to shoulder. Why do people have knee problems? Is it something to do with the foot? Is it something to do with the hip? Is it, you know, is it ever something to do with the knee? Um, and so it was all, always then about finding solutions for people's problems rather than um, just rubbing the bit that hurts or treating the pain. And, um, and obviously, I think over the years, this was 20 years ago now. So I've been teaching um, anatomy and motion since... 2006, which is not 20 years ago, but I started the ski boot fitting in 1999, and my engagement with anatomy and um, and people's problems uh, in that in that period. So it became it became addictive, and I fell in love with it. So it started with the feet, and then the rest of the body, and then human movement, and um, and now educating that as well. Brilliant, and it's um, I, I like that use of the word addiction because it really is. It's exciting to see those movement puzzles and to make those connections over time with the you know, of bodies and really start to realize just how much 
like anatomy, even when I studied it and did dissections, like it really is just what you see in the books is really like an average of a very reductionist model. Um, so nothing is really like that in vivo. And and one of the one of the really nice lines that really intrigued me with your work when I first came across your book uh, was was that joints act, muscles react, and and that actually. Um, stood out so much because there's so many people over on this side of the world, and I cannot speak for over in the UK because I'm not entirely sure, but that are in the industry and say joints are dumb. So can you elaborate on, and yours was refreshing because I actually can resonate with that immensely as a, as a very hypermobile weekly person, because I can feel it. It's like the joint muscles react. It's like that sequence made sense to me. Um, and now obviously we have years behind having even just developed that thought process. So can you go into that a little bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, whoever said joints are dumb, I, I hope they're repeating someone else uh, rather than coming across that as, as their own kind of idea. Um, and I, yeah. don't know what fa- I don't know what foundations they've got to place that on. Um, and even... In the joint fact muscles react space, I wouldn't enter into a muscles are dumb conversation um, because the two are intrinsically connected, synergistic of each other, rely on each other. One can't do without the other <laughs> type. Uh, yeah, they share innovation for starters. Exactly. And, and it is that reductionist idea um, that, would, that would lead to that outcome. But uh, down the line, we, we have this conversation when we're educating and, and probably the most powerful word um, that we use is, is, is to help people understand the, the realm of both like reductionism is one or the other and this is that it's not joints or muscles it's joint and muscles um, but the majority will take the idea and I think our education and you probably agree kind of hammers home this idea that if I'm if I contract a muscle I move a joint so the joint is therefore done by virtue of being instructed by the by the muscle but in what I noticed when um, plotting the map for movement which for anybody who's listening new um, is I, I was very interested in understanding the journey of every bone and every joint in the human body through a single footstep that single footstep lasts 0.6 to 0.8 seconds and what we know is that every joint goes travels through all of its three dimensions to both end ranges in that small period of time so a foot will pronate and supinate in that window uh, um, your uh, spine will rotate left and right in that window. A pelvis will anterior tilt and posterior tilt in that window. It is nothing that it doesn't do. A scapula will a- access all of its ranges of motion in that window, in a, in a fully functioning, uninhibited, pure flowing human body. And that's kind of the goal. If we can get to that goal, then people have the possibility of having what I call zero tension in the system. So no, no joints are compressing, no muscles are under tension and that you have that opportunity for every muscle to do the two things that it's born to do, which is lengthen and shorten, and for every joint to do the things that it's created to do, which is to open and close. And then there's a three-dimensionality to it. So we can't separate those things. So obviously if you you peel a a muscle off, you're going to struggle to to be efficient in that place. And if you lose movement in the joint, you're going to struggle to be efficient in that place and then your whole body will just organize itself around it so what 
you notice there's another rule with two rules joint sac muscles relapse being the one you've asked me about but also just to to bring up rule number one and i call them one and two probably because i thought of them in that order but i never know which way <laughs> to talk about it um is that the first one was that muscles lengthen before they contract mm -hmm. and that's an, an that's another idea that i guess it is it's supposed to establish um not establish it's supposed to challenge the status quo a little bit but um when if you we did a lot of googling animals right you can still do this today google cats in slow motion and watch them move um leopards when they're running horses whatever um, and then humans and and you'll find that it, all of the movements that are happening you're you're watching muscles actually increase in length through through the movement across the ground and then triggering a contraction what we grew up doing in, and being educated to do and still is happening in professional sports environments is the idea that the muscle contraction the shortening phase of the muscle is, is all important so think of that as taking a muscle from a resting position to a shortened position that's the type of stuff that people would be doing in a gym mm -hmm. if it comes down to quads for a, for a knee injury you know it's always knee extension right? get those quads active um, but the quality of movement in the knee is the thing that is not necessarily looked at. Um, and so the knee has different possibilities of movement. Um, and it happens, it's not just about straightening the leg, there's also a rotational element to it, which to the layperson you wouldn't necessarily be able to see. Mm -hmm. Now, if that movement limitation in the joint is compromised, you will not be able to correctly bend that knee or straighten that knee and therefore the muscle will not have the opportunity to fulfill its requirement of, of shortening or lengthening it will just be stuck somewhere in the middle limited around the, the, the restrictions at the joint you can then take that knit that um to the, the leg press and, and work those quads really 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 hard if you don't improve the integrity of the joint you'll always have a limited range of flexion extension in the knee bending straightening in the knee which means that you'll never quite get the biggest bang for your buck if you flip that around and never go to the leg press, it simply enhance the knee's ability to achieve its full movement, then you'll, you'll automatically see the quads become more active and, and do their thing. Mm -hmm. So the muscle is then responding to the improved quality of the joint. So in human movement, what we're watching, um, if you when you take a stride, let me see if I can paint a, a clearer picture. If you imagine uh, and a person who's stood up and in perfect balance straight spine everything neutral i recognize i'm talking the holy grail here <laughs> in in that place there's always a question is did do i lift do i contract the muscles on the front of my hip to lift my leg up to put it forward or do i actually fall forward into my footstep and in an ideal world you would fall forward into your footstep and if your pelvis moves forward from a neutral position, you naturally start putting length on the tissue in front of your pelvis. But what you wouldn't be doing is actively shortening the tissue on the back of the pelvis. Does that make sense? Yep. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't be actively, to take a step forward, you don't actively squeeze your glute unless someone's instructed you to do so because it helps your back pain. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, and you'd rather not, right? So efficiency is not actively squeezing something tight. Efficiency is just allowing yourself to move. So if my pelvis falls forward gently, I put length into those tissues, and those tissues then experience the length. They recognize in your neurology that joints in the front of the body are opening. 
Um, and also your center of mass is falling forward. And if your center of mass falls forward and, and leaves your base of support, so let's say your belly button is now traverse, traveling beyond your toes, you're, you're going to have to take a step forward in order to prop yourself up. So the length then that is being put into the system, I send a leg forward. Hopefully that's... Um, <laughs> we're talking such fine moments in time. As my pelvis travels forward in space, the tissue on the front of my body is going to lengthen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to stimulate the brain that the, the that tissue needs to contract one to protect the joint from opening but two to bring the leg forward <laughs> so so as the, the the overall movement of my skeleton is putting the skeleton into such a position that the muscle will then have to contract and react and and it, what but what it does it creates a um what i talked about and what the foot is another side of the coin the second side of the coin being we can we can live in a world where I can contract my uh, bicep and flex my elbow, but we should also be fully aware that in human movement, if I want to trigger that unconscious contraction of my bicep, I'm going to have to uh, extend that elbow in order to give the muscle no option but to contract. And I think that's the big line that we um, talk about a lot is, is putting a muscle in a position where it has no option but to contract or fire or wake up and various terminologies so we obviously that's where we often come to things like sleepy glutes so while we know in the anatomy world they never fall asleep they're always engaged but they're not effective so people are told and report often that their glutes might be asleep um, or dysfunctional or inactive Um, and we look at the anatomy book and we say glutes extend the hip so we have countless hip extension exercises that are they just appear to not be very useful because people's glutes remain <laughs> sleepy. Um, and and then what we started doing was, well, if we flex that hip, we'll we'll look at start to look at the skeletal system. So what is the quality of a hip flexion? Um, and it's the position of the femur, the position of the pelvis, uh, the location of your mass, the ability for the knee to flex, the ability for the foot to pronate. Because it's all on the ground. If any of those aspects don't work well, you will not get a true hip flexion. If you don't get a true hip flexion, you won't get the optimal length in your glute and you won't get the necessary firing requirement. So you'll start to find other things in your body that will do, will do the job. Um, and that's that's generally how, how we find people orbiting around. So um, in order to then give that glute no option but to contract, it has to be all about the quality of the hip flexion to get the most length so that you begin to contract that hip tissue from its most lengthened position. And that if it gets from its most length le- from its most lengthened position to its most short position, you actually have what we call range of motion, mm-hmm. and, and that's only achievable if the hip can truly flex and truly extend. And then there's two other planes of motion to be considered about when thinking about how well I'm going to be able to do that in a footstep. Yes, <laughs> no, that was that was an excellent explanation. And there's so many different <laughs> questions I can pull out of that, but I kind of want to go down a path here where. When it comes to pain and pathology, learned non-use is a very real issue. So can you tell us more about what you call nobody ever moves me-itis? <laughs> yeah, um, that's so funny because it, it, the book was written in 2013. That's the second time in two months that someone's asked me this question, uh, but not on a, pod, not on a podcast. It was, it, was a writ, it was written down. <laughs> um, so carrying on from, from the previous question, it's we can have back pain the example the lady in the in in the book what the foot who this conversation is around she she had back pain 
and she was as a result of that was unable to wear anything but trainers um and she was one of the easiest clients i've probably ever had to work with at the time um and sadly not everyone is like this but she she struggled so badly she was she would have every treatment under the sun from from cortisone injections to stabilizing the core and then everything in between all around all around the back but the truth was it doesn't matter how much muscle work had been done to that area nobody had actually educated in inverted commas her in how to move that structure so if you take the low back you have the you've got the pelvis sits beneath it the pelvis has what what we would describe as eight possibilities of movement in a in a footstep in three dimensions so four in one one dimension um you have the thoracic spine above it which is around the rib cage the rib cage has got um and the vertebra each vertebra has got six degrees of freedom um and the cervical on top of that so the neck and the skull on top of that so if your head's forward or your head's a bit left your head's backwards your rib cage is forward they're not on axis which means that the pelvis and the skull and the rib cage don't work in sync with each other you're just going to have compression in the areas and tension in areas and the less unless you are actually able to achieve these movements the stiffer and more rigid you become now if you become stiff and rigid are you ticking the box of stabilized and therefore healthy and the answer is no you are stiff and rigid and it becomes uncomfortable um and and so i coined the phrase nobody ever moved me itis right there with her in the room because within an hour or so she's like oh well everything seems fine like <laughs> don't have any discomfort i can touch my toes um and I, I i don't know if i'm lucky or it divine intervention or whatever it was but people would have these inadvertent commas miracle turnarounds but there was always a logic behind them there was always a process there was always this what can you do with your body and if it's not a lot then we're going to teach you to do everything and you might be able to do 50% of your movements and 50% not well we're going to teach you to do the 50% that you're not we're going to teach you to move we're going to re-educate your system your joint system to move which will start pulling on tissues that you didn't know you had um and as you start to come to balance so the pressure in your feet i always feel like i'm all in my left foot start to become both feet the ability to move your pelvis from left to right gets easier whereas before it was a challenge to rotate both ways gets easier whereas before it was a challenge and you just start to slowly bring the system back to life um and it's all done through movement in the closed chain which means with some part of your anatomy connected to the floor rather than on a couch and um we're effectively re-educating the skeletal system to move again and the the construct that we use for that is how does the skeletal system walk across the ground well it does this there are seven phases of a walking cycle that we teach um our students in our live courses i i always caveat that we we have 12 like the other five are potentially significant but not as significant as the seven um but what they do is when I, when i've got my weight fully on my left foot i have a posture i have a shape a leg shape an arm shape and a and a and a physical spinal shape and when i put my weight on my right foot if i can't equally access that on my right foot then i'm going to have a dominance towards my left or towards my right it's going to change my stride length my willingness to bear weight on the left versus the right uh, so that's going to affect my rotation 
blah, 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 blah. So that's just one moment in time. Um, but the, the, the point being that each phase of the walking cycle creates a whole body position. And if we understand those whole body positions and how to access them, we can then plot very quickly what movements they're happy accessing, what movements they're not accessing, which movements they can't access, which movements they've forgotten how to access, which movements they're scared of accessing because of injury, um, and then and you just start to go to work there. It's never about improving what they've got. It's all like, like the good stuff. It's always about finding the stuff that they can't and, and, and building that back up again so the brain can perceive access to both sides, that word both again, so that it can start to find a balance. And um, and so nobody ever moved me itis was you've just you've you've stopped moving out of fear probably out of guidance don't think you should do that anymore if you bend and rotate you'll probably end up on a surgical table uh, you know all these labels and, and fears that get put into people um, when it's actually a very simple process of understanding human movement and gently applying it to people. Absolutely. And we, uh, you know, there are a number of things that popped out there that we are readily discussing with clients, but also very frustrated because they are perpetuated through mainstream sources of information to, mm-hmm. to clients that are not working with someone or perspective, general pop, we'll say. And one of them is just at that, uh, you know, that fear and that fragility and that expectation of, okay, I need to create stiffness and rigidity here because this area is inherently fragile and I cannot tell you how many people I've worked with with back pain who've literally never had their feet looked at in in years um, which just tells us like they've never looked elsewhere they're always looking just at the site of pain and then building that rigidity and it's like the person who thinks they have bad posture so now they're just going to like rigidly retract and depress their scat all day and like pull their head back rather than looking at the whole picture of like well why are you in this particular position pulling forward there yeah um in general so we have a lot of beliefs like that that are rightly or wrongly um really ingrained in patients mentality their expectation as they age their expectation of oh well you know i've just been beat up because i've used my body a lot and things like that what are some Mm. of the greatest beliefs that you've noticed um shared by coaches on your courses or even by clients over the years wow that's a good question um i can think of uh Two people that spring to mind are coaches, instructors of a certain type of work who were in so much discomfort from the effort involved in holding themselves upright. So um, standing up, shoulders back, scats down, I think you just used that as an analogy, maybe that soda in my mind, but trying to move their body. So we we would do um, just... We're always assessing on the courses. So can you anterior tilt and the posterior tilt? And they are really struggling to, to do this. It hurts, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I, these two people both were doing the same thing, effectively standing up tall in the way that they'd been guided to and had forcing themselves into. And um, I don't remember the scenario. It was just slightly different for both of them. But ultimately, it was, it was do you stand like that all the time? Yes. Do you, um, have you worked really hard at standing like that all the time? Yes. Do you constantly have pain? Yes. And then it was like, well, can you just let it go? And, and they're both not in the same room. These are two different. One was actually in, um, in San Francisco and another one was in London. And, um, it was, <laughs> they were both finally given permission by someone to let go 
of that of that state and begin to inquire into a journey of how to find where they should stand if it doesn't cause them a problem but the relief and tears that they both had was insane so these beliefs i don't necessarily think that these beliefs are held by the patient i think these beliefs are poured into the patient by the educational establishments that we've got going on absolutely um and that, I, I've, it's always been been an issue for me and continues to be so the um the level of them of what is being taught is is very much at odds to what we teach and that creates conflict which feels unfair but knowing the value of, of um, the movement side of the conversation that we have is what keeps us going at it. Otherwise, I think you just give up because it's, it's far too big a beast to, to tackle and battle kind of on your own. So other things are, are people with knee overtoe. You know, knee overtoe, supination for pronation is bad, pronation is evil, um, rather than recognising that the foot is able to pronate and supinate, therefore both movements are necessary, both movements are vital, if you think about the essence of the word vital, giving life, um, to only access one of those or to shut down the other is to limit your whole body. Um, I know, I was going to say believe, but I thought that, that falls into the, the same problem. Um, <laughs> I, I know that there is such a thing as a whole body pronation and a whole body supination um, and that you can plat, plot and map and track and assess and, and use that as a navigable tool uh, for people. So somebody once said to me, why would you, why would you want to pronate the foot or what, why do you think it's valuable? And I, and I said, well, let me, instead of, if we change the conversation from pronation to supination, I said, which of, which one of your spinal movements left lateral flexion or right lateral flexion would you would you stop and never have access to again because it's the same conversation there's no difference if 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 i'm saying just right lateral flex for the rest of your life never left it's the same as saying just supinate never pronate you, you you're cutting out 50 percent of, of your movement possibility and that will ripple through your whole whole body and then so we <laughs> we're not we don't live in an establishment where we are willing to promote the pronation, to teach the pronation. We're much happier to do strengthening exercises to create rigidity in the foot, prop the foot problems up with an orthotic. It, it's all the same. It's all contributing to less and less movement in your structure and your system. Um, and normally the problem areas, which is very frustrating, normally the problem areas don't hurt. So no one's looking at them. Right. And even with pronation, like I used to race competitively in trail races and um, I wore, because uh, you're on dirt, I wore really flexible shoes because anytime I wore something more rigid, I had a greater incidence of, of tripping, but also I just, my feet felt horrible. Um, my hips felt horrible as well. And pronation always got a bad rap. So almost mm. every runner over 30 that I've worked with has been taught at some point that they need an anti-pronation shoe or a motion control shoe after about a 10 meter run assessment in a store by someone who doesn't actually have a good understanding of foot mechanics and of the role of the foot in game. Probably just a Saturday afternoon job as well for that kid. Yeah, exactly. And one of, uh, I don't know if you've read the book Muscles and Meridians, but Philip Beach described walking uh, throughout the whole system almost like a coiling and uncoiling of a pogo stick. Yeah. 
And that visual for me in combination with the writing in your book, I was like, that is exactly it. You can trace every movement upstream throughout the body in terms of what it should be able to do. And uh, you really promote a 3D model, which I, I know sounds... It, to me, it should be obvious that we are thinking in this manner, but in large part, I find that evidence-based practice citations don't honor that at all. It's much more reductionist mm. and almost like we're 2D. <laughs> yeah, well, there is a problem, which is um, if you would want to promote full three-dimensional flowing walking gait cycle, you cannot control anything. If you put a control element into any part of the body, you change the whole body and it will never be able to flow efficiently. So as long as a control element is a required practice for, for scientific validation, we can't assess gait. Because, so what you do see um, is there are people out there who will scientifically back up their courses and tell you that um, what, what's happening when the leg is behind you, what's happening when the leg is in front of you, but with control elements in place, the thing that happens when you have an element of control in the, in the back leg is that you begin to have what a pronated leg as a back leg, which a lot of people are teaching. But you, the legs must be supinating all the way through in order to let the whole body have its movement characteristics. Very difficult to explain on a podcast. But if, if scientific, if I put a control in, I can put a control into anybody and they will not be able to supinate the back leg. It's a simple breakdown factor. Uh, whether it's toe, whether it's knee, whether it's hip, whether it's rotation in the spine, um, even even changes in the neck, you will not be able to achieve the desired goal as, as, as you're pushing off. So what we end up with is people putting a control in. It now appears to be correct to have a pronating leg as a back leg and a supinating leg as a front leg. A uh, supinating leg as a front leg obviously gives you, as you put your weight on it, it's stable, your knee's over the toe. Um, but you, it totally takes out your rotational patterns. And so the, the point being, if you put a control in, and that's the, the scientific interpretation, we now have people teaching a scientific interpretation based on putting that control in, and you can't actually track and observe gait. So people say to me, is your work scientifically validated? I no, it's not, because we can't get to a place where anybody's worked out how to scientifically assess the whole thing. Uh, without putting control elements in to do their double-blind processes or whatever. It's always broken down at some point. So we're, we're very much at odds. Yeah. Very much at odds. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, uh, we're, we're super keen on the quality of movement and the understanding that the body has tolerance, adaptation, and plasticity. I mean, quality seems to have come under a lot of scrutiny by, by some in our, our field who claim that it's kind of an arbitrary standard of rules, right? Um, hmm. So how would you quantify that for clients? How would I quantify what exactly? Quality movement. Because we've seen a, a, a oh. huge range of discussions that say, oh, well, the evidence says that this or the evidence says that there is no such thing. And I think really quality comes to bringing out, if you can observe and help that person sense and then find where those blocks within that system are. For, for us, that's where we are able to achieve quality movement by restoring, you know, what what a sequence of joints are supposed to do together all in one go. Uh, yeah. But that word alone has has resulted in a lot of Twitter battles, <laughs> which are just ridiculous and we don't spend time there, to be honest. <laughs> I, don't, I don't spend any time there whatsoever. Sure, um, not worth it, no. Quality. Um, oh, 
I mean, you have done this as well, Freya, but when you when you stand with a group of 40 people in front of you and ask them to raise their arms up, mm-hmm. they're all going to do it differently. And so that leads to one conversation, which is, well, everyone's unique. They all do it differently. And the other one is, they're all doing it wrong. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and, and how do we get them to do it better? So with good cueing, good understanding of the anatomical movement of a shoulder girdle and a scapula and the spine and the spine's relationship with the pelvis and the feet, um, you can create an environment where pretty soon everybody's lifting and they all look very, very similar. And, and when you start to see that in front of your eyes, that people can be similar despite their unique attributes, you realize that the, the skeleton works in one way mm-hmm. um, and it's ho- held back by its own limitations. So, of course, there is quality of movement in a structure. There's, if you're going to look at a full range of movement, then if that full range of movement is available, and I'm not talking flexion and extension, I'm talking about flexion and extension, adduction and abduction, internal and external rotation, my ability to access all of those things with a joint centrated, let's say, in the pelvis at the hip, then you're, you're going to engage in more quality than you did before. If you have any element of those ranges compromised, the, the, the potential of that joint is compromised. And therefore, if that hip then operates differently to the other hip, whether that's better quality or less quality than the one we're talking about, you, you now have an imbalance you have it's my stride length is affected again my pelvic rotation ability is affected again my ability to tilt on that hip is affected again which is going to affect my spine so as soon as the pelvis is moving you're looking at l5 l4 l3 they're all the compromise just spirals out of these places and sometimes the thing is just to find the thing i'll tell you a little story um and you drag me back to that question if i get off track but um (laughs) (laughs) this is just a friend who put a knife through her thumb and um, ended up, they ended up, um, she was lucky not to do too much damage to the nerve, but definitely some ligament damage. And I saw her um, last week, went around for dinner, and she's like, I think I've done a disc in my back. And I said, I don't, you probably haven't, but, and then I looked at her and her pelvis was completely rotated to the right. And she was masking it by turning her right foot inwards. So I got her to put her feet straight and the pelvis rotated skewsy to the right. I said, can you rotate your pelvis to the left? And she could barely get like belt buckle facing forward. But it didn't seem to register in her face. She's like, that's me gone left, but her pelvis had barely gone gone forward. So I, it has to be the thumb because that's pretty recent. So I asked her to relax again. So she went back to her right rotated position. I asked her to put some length and stretch through the scar um, and basically the damage that she'd done to the thumb. And I asked her to rotate her pelvis again. And the whole thing went fully to the left. That's fascinating. I love that. You're a witch. <laughs> but it, it isn't actually like if you, um, if you rotate your pelvis to the left, which leg do you think? If you're walking and your pelvis is rotating left, which leg do you think would be going forward? Challenging you now. Right. Yeah, your right leg. So the right leg's going forward. Your left leg's going backwards. Yeah. Um, and if your right leg's forward, which arm would be forward? If your right leg's forward, your left arm's forward. The left arm would be forward. And if you swing the arm forward, do you think it would externally rotate or internally rotate? Externally. It would go externally. So you kind of feel like the palm travels a little bit more up towards the ceiling and, and then you start to look at your thumb and the thumb opens out. So the thumb opening out and the pelvis rotating left are just straight there. Yeah. Connected. And so she didn't have a disc problem. Well, how many people would leave that and end up going getting a disc problem because the compression is there through that part of the spine? 
yeah. ending up with an MRI. Nobody bothers about the thumb because that was sorted six weeks ago. Now we've got a disc operation happening, um, and and we just we've 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 gone. Talking about quality, that is the quality of the system that we have. Mm-hmm. I've got pain. Go and get it treated. Didn't help because that's not the problem. I don't know what to do anymore. Go and see this guy. This guy puts you in a magnetic tube. We we see something. Go to see this guy. He cuts you open, leaves you scarred for life. Still, nobody's touched the thumb. Yeah, <laughs> and that—that's the quality, unfortunately. That the, I mean, obviously, our health services do amazing and wonderful things in life-threatening circumstances. But for a lot of people, we we need to have a system whereby we can go. Let's just double check that. that have you done anything recently? Oh yeah, cut my thumb off. All right, that might be something to do with it. <laughs> yeah, it does. It, yeah, absolutely makes. So quality. Do I have quality of movement in my thumb? It, for most people, that really nobody gives a shit. It's not important, right? Do I have quality movement in my toe? Do I have quality movement in my midfoot? Do, am I able to inter and externally rotate my knee? Do yeah. my SI joints move equally on both sides? Can I move my neck? You know, scap is it stuck? Does the collarbone have freedom? No one's looking. Where does it hurt there? Treat. Yeah. Solve. Solve, not solve. You know? It's, yeah. It, it, well, we have, I mean, I had, um, I've talked about this before, but I had a really big spine injury the other year, uh, damaged one of my cranial nerves immensely and then two others. And it was, uh, so my back and SEM on the left side, just, uh, you know, when people say their glutes are off and it's not actually true, like my SEM and my trap were actually off, but it was <laughs> out of the game. Oh, they were gone. Like they were, um, I had to regrow them. I did SEM hypertrophy through isolation training. <laughs> um wow. felt a lot of staring in the mirror and willing it to fire again <laughs> uh, but kill Bill. that little bit had an impact and i could feel it sequentially down the entire uh, chain like all the way down to my feet and how my right knee started to behave and how my right hip was behaving then just like gait was the hardest thing ever learning how to, you know the left arm just went out as well and learning how to encourage an arm swing to tolerance again and and realize wow. the spine because you could just feel it sequentially and I, I think the challenge too is that even even within within small injuries or large alike uh there still needs to be a really massive like there needs to be a global picture that's taken so that we don't wind up where that metal tube pathology it's almost like you know people have something that hurts and they immediately jump to well, we must have a pathology rather than like there's this massive gray zone of influence that we carry over our system, even in time yeah. of uh, pain, discomfort, or and injury. Yeah, for sure. What I was what I was leading towards thinking was the the, the SCM adjustment. Um, you 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 end up carrying your head differently. Yep. Huh. Uh, it's going to carry down to your clavicle, so you you either you. You either drop that drop, shoulder drop, the other one lifted up. That's now changing your spinal side bend. Um, there's a rotational element to it, so you have a rotation through your rib cage counted at the pelvis. That encourages you to put one leg forward more easily than the other. Mm-hmm. That that leg that goes forward is more likely to start to adopt a pronated shape and become that kind of. Um, this is not to hex you, but a lot of people fall into a bunion shape. Oh, I'm getting a bunion on that side because because they always put the weight in that leg or they fall into that one. The other leg will struggle to pronate a little bit and therefore um, you start to just fall into a pattern. So you can always track from the feet upwards. It doesn't necessarily mean 
that, oh, my feet are always the problem. And, and I'm not saying that the feet are always the problem, but taking the feet as a base point, you can normally track all the way up the system to get and find the position. So either you damage the foot, it changes its movement and it changes everything else, or everything else changes and therefore changes the foot. The pattern is the same. It's not going to be different because you did your SEM to doing your right toe. Oh. Um, it, you're, you're just going to fall into a pattern. Our job is to understand what that pattern is, recognize that um, there, there is how you adjusted to those issues to adopt a resting posture. That resting posture, we're then interested in how are you able to move your structures inside that resting posture, create a big picture. We'll have now a list of all the joint motions um, and we'll be able to tell you which gait phases you enjoy because you tick the box of left rotation, but you don't tick the box of right rotation and rib cage. So you're not going to enjoy this phase, this phase, this phase, this phase. We'll take a second element, a third element, a fourth element, and we'll start to get a real picture of which part of the gait cycle you actually suck in and which ones you really thrive in. And then mm -hmm. we're going to teach you via understanding that the SEM was an issue. But let's say you didn't know. Some people just don't know what they did. You still have a map and a structure that you can start building back together until they get, oh, yeah, do you know what? That SCM, completely forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which happens a lot. Um, and so it doesn't, you, you can take the thumb, the SCM, a big toe, um, uh, a fall onto the side of your hip, an adjustment of the pelvis, and, and, and watch the whole thing just adapt, mm -hmm. which is what we're amazing at doing. And then we shouldn't forget that. Compensation is another one of those words that we deem as, as being bad. Oh, I'm compensating. You know, I've been told I compensate. It's a good job you could, otherwise you'd just be lying in a bed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we've got to get we, our compensations, our adaptations are the things that keep us going. And eventually, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back, they become a problem. But they, 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 it really taps into another part of the conversation and what the foot, which is where I say, I hate the word dysfunctional is that we are actually 100% functional all the time. If I lose my ability to do a hip, I, I can keep going. My body organizes itself so I can minimize the impact of that hip on my, on my system. Obviously, if we're looking at it critically from a therapeutic point of view, the system is compromised, but you are still a, able to go. Um, and, and I think that's a really important um, part. The really important part is for people to recognize that there's nothing wrong with them, like per se. They're not broken. They might be broken. Difficult conversation. They're not dysfunctional. They've organized themselves in a way to overcome their limitations. If we can then take those limitations and raise them back to a standard of quality of movement, you're going to find that people move them. Move them. They move towards using those structures again rather than away from. Um, so if you hurt, if you sprain, a sprained ankle is an absolute killer. Um, if you've heard me talk about it before, but it, it never ceases to amaze me how much an innocuously sprained ankle on a drunk night out in high heels, male or female, how that, how much impact that has on the rest of your life. Um, and I know I did my ankle 13 times in 13 soccer seasons, so I, I kind of personally know that, but it's always amazing. And, and an ankle, six weeks later, it's fine and never hurts again, but I guarantee that it's causing you so many problems in, in your body. Um, I, I, because you have to adapt. I don't want to put my weight on that ankle anymore. I don't really want to open that ankle up again because last time I did it, it would not end well. So I'm going to put my weight on my left leg and I'm going to stay away from that. And I'm going to. Yeah. And you organize yourself in such a way so you can carry on. And we have to trust that. 
you're dysfunctional. Uh, sorry, we don't like using that term either. It's a, yeah, for a multitude of reasons. But we just say like you are functional to whatever it is that you practice. So if you practice not using that joint to its fullest degree, or you practice to using that joint in this specific way, then you are just functional to that, and we can change function. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Not by taking a muscle-based exercise and trying harder and harder and harder. Yes. <laughs> but by specifically understanding what that dysfunction is, in inverted commas, what the limitation is, and reintroducing it slowly back into the system. You have to take the pressure off the system by slowly introducing back these limited structures back into being. Exactly. So we're getting towards the end here. So can you tell us a little bit more about Anatomy in Motion and Finding Center? Our website home is findingcenter.co.uk, which I know is a bit confusing from anatomy and motion. Finding Center is spelt the English way, so C-E-N-T-R-E, not E-R, and .co.uk. And and we're in the process of kind of redoing it, but on there is where we have our um, online education that we started um, this year. Um, and managed to get up and running to help people study and learn some of these concepts during quarantine that we had. And there are two things more for your audience, I think, called Wake Your Body Up and Wake Your Feet Up. And they are, in the conversation we've been having, um, I haven't really touched on it, but one of one of my kind of ideals, if you like, is that the the onus is not on the therapist, right? When you have a sore back and you go to the therapist, there's a high expectation for them to fix you. Um, the sad news is, is they actually physically cannot do that. Only you can do that. And we, in order to heal yourself, you have to have these limitations and these movement qualities that we've touched on. So as a therapist, our job is to really enlighten you with the things that you need to work on. And so often people get their exercises and they don't do them. Um, and we want them to take ownership of their body. And I think people are willing to take ownership of their body if they can understand more uh, the problem that they've got, if they get a sense of value from, say, a session. So if you show them a, a weird movement with their left ankle, um, even though they and they wanted you to treat their right ankle, but the right ankle started to feel better, they, they start to understand um, that you know maybe all this years of treating the right ankle hasn't helped because I needed to treat the left one, which was an ankle sprain back when I was 12 years old. <laughs> it gives them the opportunity to take ownership of their body. And so wake your body up and wake your feet up are self-assessment exercises, which have obviously gone down really well during the times of being in our house in lockdown and quarantine or whatever words we want to use for it, um, because people haven't been able to go to the physio, but they've been able to explore their own movement limitations guided by me on the video of my pelvis, my spine, my rib cage, my neck, my skull. Um, and on Wake Your Feet Up, we're introducing people to these concepts of what a foot pronation truly is, what a supination hip truly is, how the 33 joints in our feet need to move to achieve those things, what things we can do to encourage that to happen so that we start to be able to access both pronation and supination, opening and closing all the joints, lengthening and shortening all of the tissues, how that communicates to the knee, how that communicates to the pelvis, and then wake your body up, takes the pelvis and introduces you what things you need to look at for your ribcage and skull. And um, invariably not, it's it's really useful for people to, to we invite them to look at their injury history, um, begin to recognize that actually things that they've hurt in the past are the bits that don't move very well rather than the bit that's uncomfortable that might be moving too much but it's all guided in a way um, where I believe 
Um, and it's not to take the therapist out of the equation, but a lot of people can do themselves a lot of favors where they are able to then work more in a team with their therapist rather than putting the reliance on the poor chap who, who wasn't educated well in the first place. <laughs> so um, that's you'll find all of that on our website, findingcenter.co.uk. Uh, for therapists who are listening, we, we have an online uh, course uh, which introduces you to the lower limb biomechanics in the closed chain, um, which is a breakdown of the movements and the quality of movement that we talked about um, and how we use our wedges to help people put that system back together. Um, and in September, we'll be moving along with our upper body part of the course, and we're going to build that course out for as long as we, um, well, probably we'll build the course out anyway now to be able to try and teach everything in an online environment. Um, and crossing fingers and toes that we can get back in a live session. Fantastic. That would be great. Yeah, you guys had just re-released your courses in a, in a split format. I was keeping an eye on which countries you're going to be going to, and then this all happened. But I was really excited to see that your course was online. Um, hmm. recommended it to a number of people, at least that one part on Finding Center. So we'll link that in. And uh um, so this next question sometimes drives some people nuts, but um, we like asking it anyway because we love recommendations. What is the most impactful book that you've read in the last little while? <laughs> so my reading is, is it, I don't know, I've read so much over so many years that I eventually um, just resorted back to novels for a while. <laughs> Became a big Jack Reacher fan and reading about some big guy beating up other guys. Uh, so it's probably not useful. Um, but um, one of my favourite books is still How to Eat, Move and Be Healthy by Paul Check. Oh, yeah. Um, that was, I think that's kind of long forgotten. Um, it was definitely uh, a key book in my early days of, of getting to grips with kind of what was going on. But just, just that nice and friendly, holistic look at a uh, human body. And um, I think anything that is able to do that is... Uh, introducing people to the wider picture than, than just body. Obviously my work is, is primarily just body, just you know moving the skeleton around, but it, it's really important to recognize how important nutrition is, lifestyle factors. Um, and I think that, that book is probably digging it out of the archives for, <laughs> for many listeners because it, it, it doesn't seem to be a book that we talk about so much anymore. Yeah, oldie but a goodie. Yeah, absolutely. Timeless, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so next question. Now we know, you know, before COVID you're traveling and teaching quite a bit and that's, uh, you know, the new world, but what is your daily constant in terms of what do you fit in no matter what as your daily self-care tool? So that's a really easy question to answer. Um, and is the very thing that we have placed in the wake your body up and wake your feet up programs. Um, so uh, it's probably not a day goes by where I don't check in with my pelvis's ability to access its movements, my spine's ability to access its movements, and my neck's ability, and my shoulder's ability. Um, and then on, not every day, but feet, feet as well. Because we climb a lot, do a lot of rock climbing, we're in rock climbing shoes, um, lots of distorted positions on the wall, and, and, um, and, Really, it's just a matter you know, falls and just making sure that nothing's dropped out. And when it does, you, you put the movements, put it back in again. And, and, and that is, that's, that's the essence of that program is if you can really learn it. And I know people who, you know, have been doing it for a couple of years now have really gone 
to that level where they can do that in the morning. They don't need the video anymore. I'm just gonna just gonna check that something feels a bit weird. I'm just gonna check that my pelvis is able to do its thing and um, and gently put those bits back together through the movement. It's a really simple process, um, uh, and we call it a check in. So I'm just checking in with my body in the way you might go to a dentist to check your teeth, you know, um, or get your tires checked at the at the garage on the car. Um, we're we're no different. So that it's a really quick wake up in the morning, stand in front of the mirror, two minute job. Um, so that, that's a, yeah, it's a really simple question to answer. Uh, and if ever any, you wake up and there's big discomforts, then you, you, you do exactly the same. Mm-hmm. We're just because we move our body well, doesn't mean we're immune to, to, to the impact that our life and our training and our sports have upon us. But, um, but yeah, hopefully that answers that answers that question. Yeah, no, that's a, a great answer. And you know, we don't have a you know a, a warning engine sign if something's off. So doing that check in every morning is uh, helpful. Absolutely, but if you if you flip your idea of pain into being that warning sign you just looked at, instead of running off in a blind panic that you've got back, you know, your back's hurting this morning, you, you can, it's just a signal to say something's not quite right today. And if you've got a mechanism to, or a method or a way of of looking into that, then um, Mm-hmm. you know you should you should be all right because it can be as simple as wow I, I actually can't hike on my left hip today or get my weight into the left leg what did i do yesterday um and if you don't know what you did then you just you just re-educate back into back into the system we're quite fragile and it's very difficult to maintain that idea of being centered and neutral and having access to all movements uh, and and because anything can only from that position it's downhill <laughs> so um, if you imagine like a bell curve you at the top of the bell curve is neutral centered access or movement but you slip off left or right all of a sudden your um, limitations are setting back in and i think we all have a default pattern as well and if you can get your head around what your default pattern is then your movements and way out are, are much simpler to access yeah knowing what your key patterns are well and also understanding that that center is always that balance point you you spelled it out quite nicely even in your book that you're constantly drifting past it there's never a point where you're like specifically on it and that would be rigid anyway so yeah exactly that that, that kind of defeats the object your, your ability to be flexible around your center to move from a centered position rather than moving in an off-centered position that, that's really where we want to get people to yeah absolutely um, now, if you had just five minutes with someone, yeah. whether this is a coach or a client, what one thing would you try and impart to help them with their well-being? To know where they are in space, what space they occupy and how they move within that. Yeah, brilliant. Awareness, sense of self. Yeah. <laughs> it's crucial. Yeah. There's, a, there's a little, you just reminded me by saying the word awareness, but on, on the... I'll send you the link because it's not up on the website yet, but there's a little free ebook that people can tap into if they want to, um, which is all about the, the, what it takes to take ownership of your body and the seven steps, um, which is a nice read to, to back up some of the conversation we've had here. Um, obviously, it's inviting people into looking into the weight of your body up and weight your feet up, but, in, but there's nice explanations in there for, for the awareness side of things. And that. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, that would be fantastic. We'll share that because that's a... A big part of our um, practice is, you know, everybody understanding that they have to do their part. As you said earlier, when it comes to practitioners, nothing wrong with seeing one as long as we're also doing our part because we have that many more hours away Absolutely. from our practitioners to do the work ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and my uh, the practitioners that we work with, and I was going to say mine, they're not mine, the practitioners that we work with and teach, 
they um you know as even they move into a place where it might sound like it's bad for business but you move into a place where you actually you know we want you to be able to learn this stuff and, and do this stuff yourself i'm here if you need me um but it's it's the opposite of the model of like i need to see you three times this week four times next week every hour of the week after that um and just actually creating a space for people to learn and understand their body and that that's actually what gets people keeps people coming back absolutely we've uh, it's that abundance model and the more you can teach someone the more they uh, well we believe this <laughs> I mean, yes uh, yeah. it's bad for what somebody else would consider the bottom line but we actually think that that you know breeds success and then that client will come back next time they have a question and curiosity about their health yeah well you'd like to think so so far so good <laughs> So uh, last but not least, Gary, where can people find you? So we've got the website. Um, we have a Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash anatomy in motion. And on Instagram at, at Gary Ward underscore A-I-M for anatomy in motion. Um, and normally the Facebook uh, is, is a, you know, what I post on Instagram gets posted on the Facebook as well. Um, yeah. and, and that's it really. Keep that quite, quite brief and simple. Through lockdown, we did quite a few lives, which I want to get back to, um, where again, it's just people asking their questions. So most people, very, most people ask the same questions all the time. Not the same person asking the same question, but most people's questions are the same because there's very, you know, do, what do you think? Normally it's, what do you think of shoes? What do you think of sitting? Am I okay running? Um, when I do this particular movement, I get this feeling. And, and, and so there's starting to be quite a lot of almost FAQ type videos where, where we've got, we get more and more, um, of people's questions answered and curiosities answered and the things that they're struggling with in their movement, we can, um, we start to talk about on video as well. So, um, I think the social pages are, are quite good for that, um, as a kind of support resource, really. Um, and that's how it's certainly how I want to use it more going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an excellent way to use that. Yeah, we did notice yeah. those, and those are helpful. <laughs> Great. The, the, <laughs> Great. The, the common uh, plantar fasciitis questions, I love the way that you answered that one as well. So <laughs> we'll link those in. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Gary. Uh, so, so much for making the time today with, uh, to sit down and chat with us. We know you've done a lot. You've got a lot on the go. So we appreciate the time and the insight. And, um, My absolute pleasure. Thank you for um, good questions. It's made, stopped and made me think. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. At least we could do that. <laughs> so you, end, you end up on so many podcasts. Uh, um, you, you, know, you don't want them all, for regular listeners anyway, you don't want them all to sound, sound the same. So it's always nice when, when there's, there's a little... There's a different angle or a slight different tangent that we can um, that we can run on. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was such a pleasure, and your work um, continues to be inspirational and impactful. So we really appreciate that, and hope that your word just keeps getting out. And eventually, thank you. we back to the UK. We were there when this whole thing went down. <laughs> How were you? And almost didn't quite get locked out of Canada. So we're good. We just made it back. <laughs> well. When we come back, yeah. hopefully we can uh, cross paths and uh, see you in person. Yeah, well, if you're in London, we're in London. So um, hook up. Brilliant. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Amazing. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for uh, coming on the My show. My pleasure. Thank you everyone for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the Move Daily Health Podcast. Thanks very much, guys. 
We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.